0: Podcast. This is the second episode of the Boulevard Podcast. My name is Dusty Friend. I'm the managing editor, and today we have a pretty exciting show. Um, contributors from the spring issue, Jonathan Way and Megan Kakimoto, are in conversation. Uh, but first... You will hear them read a small excerpt from their respective pieces, and then we'll get to the conversation. First up is Megan Kakimoto, reading from her story, Baby's First Luau. Megan Kakimoto is a Japanese and native Hawaiian writer based in Honolulu, Hawaii. She graduated from Dartmouth College in 2015 and is currently a Fiction Fellow at the Mishner Center for Writers. Her work has been featured or is forthcoming in Black Warrior Review, Conjunctions, Joyland, Southern Humanities Review, and elsewhere. She has been a finalist for the Keene Prize for Literature and is the recipient of the Rambler Fiction Award. Her work has received support from the Rona Jaffe Foundation and the Breadloaf Writers Workshop. And now, here's Megan.
1: Baby's First Luau The cat died. Already they were running late to the baby's first luau, and now Judea and Raymond had to contend with a corpse crumpled like a piece of paper on her living room floor. Sure, the cat was old, fourteen years young, as Judea liked to say, but the loss sprung up on them at a startling pace. There's never a good time to lose a pet, but this occasion was particularly bad for the both of them. Judea stroked his long whiskers, but the cat didn't stir. We'll need to dispose of him. Raymond bent over his mistress and watched her shoulders go slack. She was covering her face with her hands, those velvety cream fingers that folded over his erect penis like a coat. She wasn't crying. Dispose of him? He's not a fucking trash bag, Raymond. He was our child. Raymond peered at the clock that hung over the television stand. 11.52 "'Marcy would shred his balls if she knew they weren't yet en route to the luau. "'But his mistress wouldn't quit stroking their dead cat's whiskers, "'the same whiskers that, in his senior years, "'detached from his pores and tumbled into salad bowls, casserole dishes, "'the whiskers they would bite into mid-meal like a finger of chalk. "'You know what I mean,' he said. "'We can bury him outside, or we can take him to my place, whatever you'd like. "'You don't care at all where we bury him, do you?' Raymond brought his hands to his face. The corpse was starting to smell now, a dank, musty odor that reached out and wrapped a fist around his throat. The clock now read 11.59. Raymond's youngest sister was Marcy, and Marcy had finally had a baby. She went into mild labor, then gave uneventful birth at Kapiolani under the watchful eyes of her gynecologist. She brought the baby home, gave it a name— wrapped it in a quilt, and placed it ever so gently in a cradled bassinet. She cooed with her faithful husband over its peach fuzz skull and those impossibly tiny toes. All ten of them, perfect. Never had she regarded her life as too good to be true, until the morning weeks later, when she peered over the bassinet and saw her baby's face flush the shade of a bruised plum and glassy, dead eyes staring up at her. Marcy had spent the last year mourning and would now ostensibly hold, be holding a party for a ghost. The last thing she needed was her big brother showing up late with his own grieving mistress in tow. So an illustrious possibility. Why don't you skip the luau? Stay here with him, he said. No need to go to a party if all you're gonna want to be doing is holding up your, our baby. I thought we could both stay. Would that I could, my love. But I've got to give the poule, And how are we going to get our gift to Marcy and Leonard? For God's sake, Raymond, their baby is dead. I think they'll understand. She shook her head, rose to her feet. The cat's spry limbs were contorted in the fashion of a limber gymnast. His belly was distended, plump and purple. This whole thing is so morbid anyway. I don't know what your sister is thinking. The clock read 12.06. But Judea didn't need to look at the clock to know she'd delayed them, and she sure as hell didn't need to look at her lover to read the exasperation that tumbled from his face and spilled into the room around her. For years, the surprise of satisfying sex had kept her grounded in place with this man, but now their cat was dead, and she was no longer his mistress but his date to social engagements. She'd never learned to be this person, someone meant to arrive five minutes early to a baby's first luo. Maybe it was a Hawaiian thing.
0: And now we have Jonathan Way reading from his uh, contest-winning essay, The King's Game. Jonathan Way is founder and artistic director of The Telling Project. His work has been published in The Village Voice, Iowa Review, Prism International, Nimrod International, and Glimmer Train, among others. And staged at Lincoln Center the Guthrie Theater, and the Library of Congress. He is a 2019 Interchange Arts Fellow, winner of the Catherine Ann Porter Prize for Fiction from Nimrod International, winner of the Glimmer Train Fiction Open, a Congressional Commendation recipient, and has received support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. And now here's Jonathan.
2: The King's Game. Tennis is contortion, body bent, in grace, in marvel, inspiring, transcendent, sometimes. Mostly though, awkward, absurd, incomprehensible, arch, stilted, outdated, and silly. It'll never save your life, shit, it'll never save you a dollar. Ball throw, baseball, cricket, dodgeball, handball, etc., traced back. Is your hairy, bent, heavy-browed, confused, great-to-the-tenth-uncle? Braining or avoiding being dinner. Necessary, if vestigial. Tennis doesn't throw. Body clash. Football, wrestling, rugby, basketball, etc. Is again Uncle Harry. Struggling for food, turf, better branches, sweeter leaves. Tennis doesn't clash. Tennis puts no cross no touch nets between opponents. Every two games, you switch sides. Nicely. The racket, not bat, not club, not blade or bludgeon. Strung hoop with a handle. Ineffectual net. Anthropomorphic egghead. You shake hands with it. Hello there, racket. Nice to meet you. Tennis has no urgent route. Skills learned on court will serve none of life's basic needs. It's an evolutionary appendix, a node of no purpose, a dead end, a deserted cul-de-sac. It's the king's game. Henry VIII loved tennis. His opponents, maybe not. The French nobility did too, but it didn't help them with their revolution problem, i.e. decapitation. The people rose up, and the game declined But then came back, of course, when the Royals snuck back in the 1800s. It's a European game. At 13 years old, a half-Chinese kid in the middle of the American prairie, I became obsessed with the game. Physically, emotionally, psychologically. Tennis is contortion.
0: And finally, Let's get to the conversation between Jonathan and Megan. Uh, all right, so uh, who would like to uh, starve a guest?
1: <laughs> I I loved your essay, Jonathan.
2: <laughs> Likewise, Megan. I mean, <laughs> you know, Dusty approached me to to do a podcast, and he said, "Look through," and you know see who's sort of stands out. And yours was, I mean, I just like, there were a lot of things I really loved about your story. Um, oh, really cool you. thing. Um, and one of the things I actually, you know, I mentioned to you earlier in our emails, but I wanted to, I wanted to maybe start out with it if you don't mind, which is your use of non-English vocabulary and non- I mean, how do we say it? Non-dominant culture reference consistently and just sort of in in as as part of the world of the story without explanation, which I love. I mean, I mentioned that to you before. I I, I think that that's a really interesting thing to do. It always. Um, it always puts my my reading mind into a very particular place, and I'm wondering what you know where that came from for you, and what thoughts you have about it. Um, how you know how that how that signifies for you?
1: Yeah. So I guess to start, it's been a challenge to write a piece that relies kind of heavily on pigeon. It's kind of an, in Hawaii we call it pigeon dialect. Pigeon is everywhere. And I think that I, you know, I grew up speaking English, I learned a little bit of Hawaiian when I was in school. And, um, but pigeon was always kind of the, the informal dialect that we spoke in our family and with friends. And I think it's a really difficult thing to kind of translate into into a story. But when I was writing this piece in particular, I, I really wanted to write something that was kind of unabashedly Hawaiian without, I think, bending to my first impulse, which was to write for a white audience. I've, I want my work to be read widely and I, I really want to be able to reach readers from around the world. But, and I don't want to be uninte- or intentionally confusing, you know, with, with pidgin or with native Hawaiian terminology. But I think for me, it was also just really important to preserve these cultural elements in a tale that's, you know, grounded in something as significant for our culture as a baby's first luau, which is Mm. really, you know, very, very important for Hawaiians to celebrate. And I thought that this story in particular, it would only benefit from having such a big presence of Native Hawaiian terminology, some pidgin creole kind of language within the conversations. And I felt like that was the only way to keep it authentic.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, just to kind of explain, you know, what it does to my head. I mean, it immediately, I mean, there's a world, you know, and whether or not I'm in that world or whether or not I necessarily understand that world, I am, as a reader, I am put into it. And I think that that's a really, that's a powerful thing, you know, and I understand that there may be readers who are less uh, receptive to that, but certainly not me. I I loved, mm. I loved that element of the story. And I love that in when it's used effectively. And I, th- I thought you used it really, really well.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. I think that it's interesting. It's like I've noticed in writing several drafts of the story is where I kind of am able to, it's like such a fine line to walk when it comes to making sure that you're not being too vague or confusing, but also preserving that authentic talk
2: it's funny you know i mean this is not this is not anything i wrote to you about but i'm hearing you talk about it it occurs to me that you know i also have i've had in my own work there's an impulse to translate there's an impulse to Mm -hmm. kind of like to reach out and there's also a way in which that's for us conceding that ground to someone else yeah Which is something that there may be truth in that, but there's also some harm in that, you know, when when we do that. And it's, you know, what actually really made me uh, reflect on that was when you were saying it's easier to do it when you're going back into it. Mm -hmm. Because it does seem like, you know, our first defense mechanisms as writers of color Mm -hmm. is to put it into what we consider to be the sort of safe space or the literary space or whatever, you know, whatever vocabulary you want to use that for. Uh, for that but it's but that's also generally the dominant culture space yeah and then we have to kind of go in and and pull pull it back
1: yeah um, absolutely you
2: know, which is uh, I mean that's a process it's it's the same thing that you know one of the things you asked about was the rhythm and the repetition mm-hmm. in, in that piece and that's definitely something I, I've, I've been writing essays now for like four years I um I just started in 2017 basically uh because of Charlottesville. And this references, the, the this essay references a town in Virginia, it's 20 minutes from Charlottesville. And I, and I grew up there in the seventies and I moved there the year that that town started desegregating. So that that's kind of what I was thrown into. And then when the riots happened in Charlottesville in 2017, I was just like, I, I was watching these people on television. I was like, I know those guys. I mean, I know them all, you know, I mean, whether or not I actually knew their names any longer, they were like really like bone deep familiar to me. And so I've been writing back into that stuff, um, and that repetition, you know, that's on a personal level and on a revising level. That's what you were just describing. It's going back there, finding some of this language that um, is significant and has a certain kind of significance. And then building it back in, stitching it in later and later and in, 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 in different ways in a different context throughout the piece as a way of both mapping how language changes over time and over generations and over a single lifetime, um, but also reclaiming the language to a certain degree, you know, saying, yeah, this has this thing, you know, hello, racket. You can say that, you know, and it's sort of like, hello, racket, you know, at the first, the first time you say it. But the fifth or sixth time you say it, it's gained all of these different kinds of implications. And so like that's a it's a similar process, or at least I'm seeing it as a similar process to what you're describing, where you go back into these things to pull back some of it or to to reorient some of it or to turn it a little so that it becomes something slightly different than what the initial impulse or what guided our initial impulses and perhaps, you know, some of our initial defenses when we when we first go into writing something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that because I, I just, something I love so much about your essay is that like it feels like it can only exist in this form and in this structure and, and it was just, it was such an experience to read. I guess I would love to hear a little bit about like your writing process or your process in writing the piece. Correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds more like the structure kind of followed the content versus the other way around. But yeah, just totally correct me if I'm wrong.
2: I'm trying to remember. (laughs) I I I, I think I started this one maybe two years ago and it came out in pieces. And some of them I pulled from other things that are maybe now dead or maybe, you know, will take another form some other time. I think it was, you know, I mean, a lot of these essays that I've been writing, these personal essays, have just been like, I sit down, and I'm just like, I've got something on my brain, and I just have to, you know, get it out on, on paper. And then I'll go and grab pieces from here and pieces from there and start putting something together. Tennis, there's some fairly obvious reasons for going about writing an essay on tennis, that has a really obvious and really sort of um, explicit structure. And one of the reasons is because tennis is a game and games are all about structure. That's what they, that's what they are. And within the structure, your performance within that game is evaluated as, you know, how well you adhere to it and yet how well you exceed, I mean, without hitting the ball outside of the lines, essentially. Um, And that's, yeah, that, that's such a sort of, that's such a ripe metaphor for, for immigrant, immigrant culture, but also just, you know, for, for virtually everyone. I mean, you know, we're all kind of trying to place ourselves within what seems to be a fairly coherent game for some people. And for me, not necessarily so coherent, but I'm still, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure out what the rules are. And then I'm trying to, you know, it it goes back to writing into a dominant culture, you know, what are the rules? What are we supposed to do? And then how do we actually, within that culture, do something else, you know, do something which, which is not just that. Um, which isn't just playing by the rules, which isn't just like, I don't know, not getting decapitated. I, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, exactly how to, how to put that. But it's that's one of those, like, that's one of the things that I was was definitely, as I started assembling it, that was really important to me. was like, I want this to be a very structured thing. Mm-hmm. And it didn't actually occur to me until probably two-thirds of the way through writing it, that forehand, backhand, and serve had these double entendres to them, which were perfectly appropriate for the way in which the essay moved along.
1: Yeah.
2: And when that happened, I was like, oh, wow, I'm really, I'm quite clever, even though I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like it came out in that way. You know, it's also historical. So there's there's a timeline that's fairly coherent that you can, you can follow fairly easily. And, and if you write along that timeline, then certain kinds of structure are going to come out. But it, it's a good question. It wasn't one that I had really thought. I'd thought about it on sort of meta terms, I hadn't really thought about how it came about. Um, I'm sh- I'm not I'm still not totally sure. I start thinking about tennis and I and I start thinking in a structural way. I mean, it's it's you know, like I said, it's a game I've played since I was a kid. And so the rhythms of it and and the rules of it and the way that you move within it and and the kind of observation of it at the same time, it's all very sort of intuitive at this point. And that's probably that's probably what, what the guiding influence was in that, in, in coming up with that structure.
1: I, it was such a pleasure to read. I think especially like, I had a, I took a special pleasure, I think, because I played tennis in, in high school and, um, oh, yeah. and so much of what you said on the technical level really resonated with me and, you know, talking about the serve and, and in the end, when you, in that line that I just loved about, I, I don't want to butcher it, but it was something about how, you know, when you're teaching your son to play tennis and do you teach him to serve? And, and I, I just, I love that. And it felt so, I, it resonated a lot with me, so <laughs> and really? someone who's like, oh my God, the serve is like three, you know, three parts, more or less one motion, but it's so incredibly complicated so and awesome. I just hate it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: It's an imp. It really is. I mean, it is an absurd game in in, yes. in so many ways. I, I wanted to actually ask you too. One of the the structural elements of your story, which I also loved, was the way that thematically you overlaid these these variations of the single theme of grief. Mm. Um, And we come into the story and there's the dead cat on the floor and Marcy and Raymond are, you know, trying to kind of deal with that. Or not Marcy, Judea, I'm sorry. No, no. And then, of course, the the overarching structure is is Marcy and Leonard's child. And then there's Tutu comes in towards the end with her. Again, even bigger historical information about, about this. And then, of course, you know, just the whole, like, the fact that they're in a hotel that's like obviously a holiday hotel and like you know that just I mean there's so many layers of this and yet like it's not overwhelming in any way it's it's really like it's really beautifully and delicately handled and they each play off of each other in a way that that both emphasizes and at the same time kind of gives us some more loosening around it it's not like it's there's not there's nothing about it that could I mean I looked at this and I was like you know I looked at my question and I was like oh this could be a really heavy piece and it doesn't end up being heavy at all it ends up being really interesting talk about that talk about the layering of the grief talk about the the, the way in which the different characters worked for you mm-hmm. um, and the way in which you see them working on each other in this particular sort of thematic I guess world
1: yeah so grief is always I'm absolutely fascinated by the many like different idiosyncratic approaches that people can take to encountering and living with grief and the just the different forms that it can take and I think that something that something that's interesting to me is like grief is often heightened alongside times of celebration where it's like you know the holidays and that's when a lot of times people have a really hard time during the holidays um Mm -hmm. because it'll or anniversaries. so something that struck me when I was writing, was this idea of a you know a baby's first luau in Hawaiian culture? Like I, it is probably equal to like a wedding, or like it, people spend incredible amounts of money to host a baby's first luau. It's it can be elaborate and very over the top. And I was playing with this idea of taking this world, but kind of like the world in which I live, but kind of putting it just a little off center, I guess, um, mm. in a way that's you know oh here's a baby's first luau for a baby who didn't make it to the first year and what that means for the parents, what it means for the the surrounding family. Something else that's really important about Hawaiian culture and and celebrations like the first luau is that it's very family centric, right? So you have all the aunties and uncles and cousins and and tutu and, you know, everyone gathers together for what's supposed to be this really fantastic celebration. But I was interested in kind of using that as the, the setting to explore what grief does to different people and how they have to move through it in a time when, or in a, in a setting that's a little more like, oh, celebratory or congratulatory, you know, it's a little off. And I think that I know in one of your, you, you had mentioned kind of just this level of like displaced cultures overlaid one on, you know, on top of the other with mm-hmm. this being at this very... Ritzy Kahala Hotel and Resort. And I think that there's an interesting thing that I I think that these characters are realizing um, is that like, you know, kind of because of this displacement, there's a kind of a difficulty among the characters in expressing the full extent of their grief. And and there's a inherent miscommunication among all of the different couples and family members in that they can't really. Bring themselves to fully, I guess, express this grief in a way that feels like it'll be received.
2: Yeah, that's super interesting because it, like, it occurred to me as you were saying that it's almost like Marcy and Judea. Well, at least Judea is competing with Marcy in terms Mm -hmm. of grief, which is such a strange distortion of grief. (laughs) And yet, at the same time, when I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, that's what that's so human, right? I mean, that's kind of the way that we either process or fail to process or
0: both Mm -hmm. those things in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: That occurred to me as well. Big celebration happening around baby who has died and there's uh, all this family here. And yet there really isn't this experience of shared grief Mm -hmm. that everyone who is grieving is having to do so in isolation within themselves, hmm. even though all these people that should be comforting and helping them, they just don't have that relationship. As you say, they're, they're failing to communicate uh, with one another.
2: That's interesting. I mean, maybe Megan, do you have thoughts on that, that sense of isolation among the various characters? I mean, when you were working with them, how, how did that come out for you?
1: I know just, I think maybe just from observation and also just my own personal experiences, I feel like it's so hard to, I guess, express grief in a way that can be shared, if that makes sense. I think that I was thinking a lot in parallel with with your essay about this idea of contortion. And, mm. you know, a lot of times, especially in, in Hawaiian culture, it's a lot of bending to make people feel accommodated and not make waves, not make people uncomfortable. And in situations like this, where, you know, people are grieving in different ways, it feels like this missing the mark is almost inevitable, just because every, you know, you're as much as you are concerned with your own grief, you're also kind of very hyper aware of other people and how you are making them feel. And and because of that, it's almost like there's not a really, it's not an environment a lot of times where you can fully express and share in a collective grief. But I was thinking about that in terms of the contortion piece, because I was like, this is exactly, this resonates so much with me.
2: The structures that we try to observe are then also the structures which in many ways fail us right yeah. i mean they, they they don't allow us to actually fully access what it might even what it, what it might be about that we you know that the structure is there for yeah. What about, I want to ask you also, I mean, we talked, or I mentioned this in, in our exchanges earlier, and I, and I talked, you know, I, wanted, I, I mentioned it as, as the women, but I actually am interested in the women and the men contrasting with one another, because in, in many ways, Raymond and Leonard, I mean, they're, they're sort of, they're sort of similarly, like, disposed towards this event. Mm-hmm. And then you have Marcy and Judea, who are actually also fairly similarly disposed, at least as regards themselves and the world around them. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, you know, this is, this is, again, you know, this is one of these uh, conversations, a question that could take any number of different layers to it. But I'm I'm curious about how you were thinking about women in this and then the women and the men in this as well.
1: Mm -hmm. I think for this piece, I, I really feel like I gave myself like permission to take pleasure in writing these really often ridiculous and indulgent characters. And the women in particular, I think I had a great, (laughs) great pleasure in writing, you know, Native Hawaiian culture, like women have a great deal of agency, and they're respected and revered in a way that kind of feels contrary, maybe to many contemporary, maybe the contemporary treatment of women. That's actually something that I'm you know, in this piece and in in a lot of my other fiction, I'm really interested in kind of putting women's stories at the forefront of the work. At the same time, I also had a lot of fun writing the men and and just like it it was grounded in this kind of miscommunication and inability to connect with those exchanges between um, Judea and Raymond those were so much fun because I feel like it it felt so like a comfortable place for me. And just seeing that there's a lot of, a lot of ways that they're both missing the mark in, in connecting with each other. And I think there is a lot of, you know, love and affection in this relationship and in the other relationships in the story with Marcy and Leonard and Tutu's love for the family, but it's incredibly complicated. And at the end of the, day, it's, it's really hard for them to build something that's lasting.
2: It seems to, I mean, this is, again, my observation, and maybe this is not you, what your interest is or, or intent, but I'm going to ask you anyway. It felt to me like the women were moving, whereas Marcy, who was basically organizing this very strangely conceived, but nevertheless, she felt at some level necessary ceremony or whether it was Judea who was like there's something happening here and she's like okay things are gonna have to change.
1: Yeah.
2: And then Leonard and Raymond were both kind of like well shit's just fucked and I just I wanna, you know, I want to find something okay. And there's you know there's an interesting there are interesting dynamics in that, some of which you know I'm sure I'm I'm reading onto them, but I I'm interested in hearing what your take on on that kind of duality is from this story and maybe from your other work and from, from your other, ups or from, you know, the way you see the world.
1: Thinking about that, I think I don't want to repeat myself, but I, I do feel like I kind of just followed in this piece, what was giving me the most pleasure in in writing. Yeah. And a lot of that was in this momentum of Judea and Marcy. It wasn't until I actually finished writing the story and then like was going through revisions that I realized that Raymond didn't know how to drive and that like he literally could not (laughs) unless he was riding the bus or you know (laughs) taking his bike he he could not travel anywhere without Judea or without Quinn who was was his wife who is not present in this story but yeah I really feel like when we're when I'm reflecting on that writing process at least in the first draft when I got this down on paper I um I know that I gave myself that permission to really follow what was giving me the most pleasure and that's not to say that I didn't have a great time writing like you know the scene of Leonard dropping all of his food at the buffet that's, on his feet that's and you a know good
2: scene. it's such a good scene yeah.
1: <laughs> it was like it had it gave me a lot of pleasure to write but I think that in this work and in, and I I will admit in like a lot of my stories I am really interested in exploring these internal lives of women and kind of their dynamism and their things that they're facing in in moments of intense grief or right. um or difficulty.
2: Well, you did really beautifully. I mean, I thought it was just and again, like, you know, felt like this could all have been really heavy. And in mm-hmm. the end it felt like clearly it was there was sadness there, but there was also a lot of humor and just mm-hmm. a huge amount of resilience and intelligence and also misunderstanding and misguidedness. I mean, it was just, it was, it was really well layered and complicated.
1: Thank
0: you. Congratulations. Yeah.
1: Thank right. you so much.
0: It's sort of a related question for Jonathan, given that you work in other mediums, how uh, you are exploring the themes that are in this essay in those other mediums. Like how are they similar? How are they different? Like whether that be tennis or your family's history or growing up in Virginia and Minnesota.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think that I've largely used those other forms to avoid this material. This is, this is really hard stuff. Um, you know, I don't think that I would have undertaken this And I say this, you know, somewhat facetiously, but only somewhat if it hadn't been for Donald Trump. I mean, honestly, it was like, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've been working with in the nonfiction, and I've written several essays at this point, some of which are done and a lot of which are not. I think that I could have happily avoided thinking about that stuff for the rest of my life. I mean, it's not particularly easy. It was not a great time in my life. And I don't think it was a great time in the nation. I mean, it was a really strange, tough transition. The civil rights movement, The civil rights era was ending, and we were kind of in the wake of it. And so there was all this legislation that had happened, and there was a lot of congratulation that was going around among certain elements of the population. And there was a lot of backlash and a lot of fury among other elements of the population. I came from the North, I moved from Ohio to Virginia, and then back to Minnesota. And so I was like, we were kind of bouncing across these lines of fury and self-congratulation or, or fury. And basically it wasn't, it, it, there was self-congratulation definitely, but it was this kind of self-congratulation in the North that was like, and we can be done and we can go back to normal again, normal. And when you're, whatever you are, Brown or a person of color or how, you know, whatever the, the moniker might be, None of that stuff fits very well. I could easily have written the fiction that I was writing. You know, it was it was I mean, it's definitely fiction about being Chinese American in the United States. but it was much more sort of uh, subtle observational stuff. It was, um, you know, I suppose there was microaggression and things like that in there. it's that's a word that, you know, only recently has come into use but I think it's a it's an appropriate word but it wasn't really it wasn't really dealing with the kind of deeper emotional stuff that I had encountered through my living through these times so then the nonfiction stuff I I can do it for a little while and then I have to take breaks I mean like you know I can I can go into you know I run a theater nonprofit. I can do that. I can I homeschool my kid. You know, I have all yeah. kinds of things that I can do that are away from that. And my fiction to some degree, although my fiction has, has started hewing closer to the nonfiction thematics in the last few years as well. And the honest truth is, you know, I don't, I don't know how much more of it I can write. I mean, it is hard. And it's, it's, it's so like, you know, right? Most of my life, I'm surrounded by people who, who love me. And who I love, and like you know, that's like that's good. And then I go into this stuff, and that's a world where that's not true. And it's a tough world to go back into. And it also starts making me see that world around me in in ways that I, I again I try to avoid, um, just for my own sanity, just for my own sort of emotional well being. Yeah, I don't
0: know if that's a good answer to the to your question or not. It's, uh, it was uh, very illuminating. Yeah, uh, sort of surprising. Definitely not what I was expecting.
1: I have not written a lot of nonfiction, but when I do, it's, it requires so much just emotional energy and breaks. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I'm actually such a process nerd. I'd love to, if you'd be willing to share, I'd love to hear a little more about your your writing process when it comes to these essays. And there's a lot of wh- what I was really struck by in this piece was kind of just this integration of like the historical into something that's so personal for you and as and, and then like something that's personal like tennis I would just love to hear a little more about your process in terms of putting all of this together do you need to practice self-care and you know take take those breaks and and take those pauses in order to kind of come to what feels like at least a, a an okay first draft
2: yeah I mean yes the, the answer to that question is yes I mean I think that when the material actually comes out for these things, the really interesting part that started happening in 2017, which i it's interesting to me because it's fairly new, um, is just memory. Um, you know, I'm 54 years old and going back to when you're 12 um, or 10, if I were to just do it, like, okay, I'm going to go back to being 10, it would require a lot of muscle work, like brain muscle. But I think that the catalyzing environment of the last several years and just a kind of sense that you know I'm seeing these things and they are they're touching off sparks of different kinds or resonances or consonances or dissonances, and just kind of like allowing myself to go quiet enough to go back into those places, that's when the the real sort of the, the very personal stuff will come about. And it's all very physical. That's a really interesting thing about this is that it's super physical memories, because, you know, I was 10, 10, 12, like, I wasn't spending a lot of time conceptualizing anything. Um, I was responding physically and chemically and psychologically, emotionally to an environment and that became imprinted. And so in order to get to that stuff, I have to kind of, I have to, to do a much more kind of physical work than I've ever done before as a writer. Um, you know, the, the, that's, I think, Dusty, going back to, to your question, like a large part of the difference between the fiction and the nonfiction for me is that the, the fiction, I use physicality as as a kind of technique, as an element on the page to engage you know, a reader in a certain way in a, in a scene or something like that. The physicality in in the nonfiction, I guess, it's also a technique, but it's it's much more about really remembering what those things were, remembering that time, getting myself into that space so that I can then render it um, in some way. And the repetition as well, as, as you were talking about, Megan. There's something super physical about that for me. There are some other essays that I've that I've also written that are actually even much they're they're much more repetitive than this, much more musically. Driven, much more about a kind of creating a physical presence with the language itself, much more prosody to them. I,
1: I mean, and all of that really requires a lot of vulnerability, like so much vulnerability, I think, in, in throughout all stages of the process.
2: It's why I don't want to do a whole lot of this. Yeah. <laughs> At some point I, I want to like stop feeling like I'm learning all the time and just sort of, I mean, I hate golf, but like, is there a golf like thing for writers? You know, I don't know. I mean, something that seems a little less sort of, maybe not, maybe that's futile.
1: <laughs> or match play versus rallying. I, I, maybe. <laughs>
2: actually, and, and actually you, you brought that up and that's a really, it was a really good and, and a lovely point. My wife and I, we play tennis. It was like, you know, it was something we kind of discovered about each other early on in our relationship. And we we're like, oh, that's really cool. And it's a really cool part of our relationship. Like, you know, it doesn't matter where we are in terms of our heads. It doesn't matter where we are in terms of each other. Um, you know, we can go out on the court and there's a kind of physical rhythm that we just fall into and never, we never play matches against each other. You know, we might play like rally games sometimes but when we're at our best, we're just hitting the ball back and forth and it's great. You know, it's yeah. just sort of this like, it's like this, uh, codependent fugue state which is really a lovely thing and that was what it was with my dad too I mean this relates to to some of your male characters you know my dad was not a particularly expressive guy isn't he's he's still alive He's, he's 89 now um verbally but we had tennis and it was like time with him and me you know, and that's all it was like there was nobody else around There's two people on a court and whether or not we were expressing our deepest emotions, we were connected in a really cool way. Maybe we would feel the same way if we were both football players, but I don't think so. I mean, I think that it really is like this, you know, it's this confined, it's this space that you are in together and for it to work, you have to be there with each other. That's a, that's a super cool and interesting observation that you made and you know obviously I I, I put it in there with my own kind of reasoning I think that for me it was more about this kind of chip on my shoulder about competition which I you know I have a hard time with but uh, there's also the other side of it which is the intimacy of the non-competition which was uh, super important to me and super and super lovely I wanted to ask you about the cultural stuff like Mm -hmm. and maybe this is more personal than you want to talk or or, you know so please tell me if I'm if I'm pushing too far but you are culturally mixed I assume Mm -hmm. um I that's what I'm assuming from your fiction which of course we should never assume from someone's fiction that they're writing about (laughs) themselves but um I was going to take that leap and I wanted to hear about you like hear you talk about first of all the 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 cultural overlays but second of all one thing that maybe is just my personal interest which is mixedness which is a particular Mm -hmm. kind of thing and it happens in this story in a really cool dynamic way so yeah I'm going to just kind of leave it there and and I Mm want to hear
1: what
2: you're where where you are what you think about these things and how you work with them Mm
1: -hmm. I am mixed I'm native Hawaiian but I'm half Japanese. And I have an abundance of other like European, like Irish, French, Scottish, Russian, you know, um, blended in there. But the mixedness is something that I am very interested in um, that a lot of my fiction explorers that I was really pulled and gravitated toward in your piece as well. And just this sense of not really knowing where you belong or finding that place where you belong and having to contort your body (laughs) and and contort you know based on where you are for example like here in hawaii people look at me and actually think that i'm i pull haole they say which is what we we say haole in terms of like white when i went to school in new hampshire for college people all thought that i was asian they called me asian right. <laughs> and, and it, it's really interesting how that was perceived to me and and i just Super familiar I, with that yeah I, i'm sure that's exactly what i was thinking when you piece. and there was that line and i i don't want to you know hold up the conversation but there was a really there was a line that you had written about i wasn't black and i wasn't white i was a problem and that really stuck out to me because it is fascinating to me that people can't Pin you down, <laughs> then you are a problem. And that is really, that's just something that I'm really interested in exploring in my fiction.
2: Yeah. I felt that I saw that in different ways, in the ways in which the, the individuals were interacting. I loved that in the way that the language worked as well mm. um, in your piece, because, like, I mean, at least for me, I don't know what my language is. I mean, yeah. what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, in, in many ways, I'm trying to define it, you know, as I write, and it's going to change as I. Continue writing throughout my life, you know, and that kind of works in this in all these weird ways. You know, I have writers who I love, but I don't, you know, I don't belong to a canon. Mm-hmm. There's no canon for us yet. Mm-hmm. Have you read I.E. the It was the first Asian American anthology. I haven't. It was published in 1972, and it came out mm. under Howard University Press because nobody else would publish it. Mm. It's kind of amazing. It's kind of problematic but it takes on its own problematics sort of head-on. Mm. And they're talking about like, you know, what is Asian-American? Yeah. What does that even mean? Um, and they asked this question in 1972, and I think that it's, you know, still being asked. And we have this now, we have Asian-American Pacific Islander. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? You know, I mean, what does any of this mean? We're, we're talking about this massive spectrum, culturally, linguistically, historically, um genetically that are othered here so that they can know who we are or they can know what we are you know it's not even who we are it's 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 what we are but again like you know when you're a writer you're kind of like playing that line Mm -hmm. in in these ways that you know feel a little dirty sometimes and feel opportunistic yeah but also are like fuck it you know I'm I'm getting (laughs) over like that's what Quincy Jones called he called it getting over man I gotta get over right? I mean, you've got to actually reach the audience that you want to reach with the ideas that you want to reach, and you've got to do it somehow. Yeah. And you got to make a living. <laughs>
1: There's that. <too, laughs> yeah. You know?
2: So yeah, it's, it, it's super complicated. It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about going from Hawaii to Dartmouth, right? Is that where you were? Yeah. 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 I think I read that in your bio. Because that's sort of like, I mean, it, that immediately I was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like going from Virginia to Minnesota. Totally. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, Completely different notions of who you are, how you are other, othered, um, you know, how you are included. Ah, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of mind boggling at, at some level, and and some level you just be like, okay, <laughs> yeah, but you know, it takes a lot of. It takes a lot of wherewithal to just be, you know, to kind of be that philosophical. And uh, depending on how old you are, and you know what you're doing, and what kind of a context you're going into, that can be really mm-hmm. tough.
1: Yeah, I mean, I still I think a lot about. I, I actually I should rephrase that. I try really hard not to think a lot about about reader readership as much anymore because it it can paralyze the writing mm-hmm. really. Because I I really am passionate about people reading work by Native Hawaiian authors. And uh, I want the work to be accessible. Um, But it is like, I know, we talked about a little bit earlier, that really fine line in order to, you know, make the work accessible and make it and welcome readers versus kicking them out just because they don't know a couple words. And and there are going to be readers that aren't interested in they're not really the kind of readers who want to go and look up something that doesn't make sense to them. And if the context clues aren't enough, then they're just, you know, not interested. And that's true. And I think that that's why I've I've realized in the process of writing several stories that if I think too much about that, and especially in that first draft process, it just completely stalls the work and and then I just don't finish it. (laughs) So it's something I've had to like really pull back on and be conscious of and just realize like, okay, try as hard as you can not to think about that. and, And let the work really get that first draft down.
2: Yeah. And then when you, like you were talking about earlier, go back and when yep. you can be deliberate about it, you can choose, you choose the moment to do it. You can choose the ways in which you're going to do it. You can be very mm-hmm. controlled about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's interesting. I mean, that would be actually an interesting essay topic.
1: Say, yeah. <laughs> it's something <laughs> I've thought about writing. It, it's just, yeah. I really have to, it'll take some time, I think. And I have to force myself to really put in that work to do it. But I think that that's, it is something that's on my on my heart
2: to write about. Yeah. I would love to, I'd love to read that. Cause like, cause you know, it, it on one level again, there's like the structural level and then underlying that is just like all this very personal, very intense stuff.
1: Yeah.
2: That like, you know, you're trying to kind of manage in some, in one way or another. And totally yeah, it's super interesting.
1: Yeah.
2: Well,
0: yeah, I was, I was going to say, I, I, I think that uh, you know, this conversation is, been amazing. And I, you know, do you guys have any uh, final thoughts, final questions or uh, anything felt like we didn't cover that you would like to cover?
2: I, would, I just want to say once again, Megan, I think your story is fantastic. I really, I loved it for all, all of its different layers. I mean, you know, you just did a masterful job of bringing very clear, distinct characters together in a very strange environment and making them super dimensional and complex and rich. And I just, thanks for writing it. It was, it was really a pleasure
0: to read.
1: Thank you. And I, I sincerely feel the same way about, about your work and, and I'm really just everything about the King's game and, and personally, because I have, you know, a a heart for tennis (laughs) and so for this Yeah, it definitely helps. And for this familial exploration and this topic of you know this generational trauma, and and I think that there's a lot. Just I, I was just completely in awe with how much you're able to accomplish in this structure and in this piece, and yeah, and I'm just so grateful to kind of be to be in conversation with you about it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And when you come to Austin, have you yeah. ever to do?
1: Okay, that sounds right. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank it's
2: you. Good to be in person.
0: Well, that's all for the show today. If you want to read more of what we've got going on at Boulevard, please go to boulevardmagazine.org. If you're interested in purchasing the spring issue, it is available there. Uh, Thanks to Adam Botts of Sex Dad for providing all the music you heard today. You can get more of Sex Dad's music at sexdadmusic.bandcamp.com.